Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we break down the latest numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, which showed a slowdown in the pace of hiring and the unemployment rate ticking up to 3.9%. Dick Beauvais once again challenges the numbers as a barometer of labor market conditions, but he says all indications now are that the economy is slowing meaningfully on the jobs front. Matt Van Alstyne says the jobs numbers show a large percentage of U.S. workers are now holding multiple part-time jobs. We'll discuss the decline in the U.S. jobs quit rate. We'll look at U.S. interest rates, monetary policy, and the U.S. money supply. Dick has data on U.S. auto sales with growing signs of weakness. The wealth management industry has seen a record growth in assets under management. Dick Beauvais has some numbers. There's news from the regional banks. We'll discuss that and lots more. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 94. Monetary policy, the manufacturing data, jobs numbers, the auto sector and some big numbers on the large banks and asset managers we're going to be talking about a lot on this episode. Our first, the jobs numbers that came out last week, uh, Dick and Matt, your thoughts. U.S. employers added, based on the numbers reported widely in the media, the establishment numbers seasonally adjusted. Employers added 150,000 jobs in October, That's just half the September gain and the smallest monthly gain since June. I see you uh, rolling your eyes already, Dick. (laughs) You know, we've we've complained repeatedly, as has Matt, uh, that these uh, job numbers are are specious uh, in nature because basically uh, they produce four numbers uh, each month trying to show what the change in jobs are. And these numbers seem to have no relationship to each other whatsoever. In other words, if we take, uh, and I'll give you what the four numbers were for the last uh, month, Uh, if we take the what is called the establishment numbers, the establishment numbers are obtained by people calling companies and saying, you know, did you hire anybody? Did you fire anybody? Uh, Basically, 
and uh, the not seasonally adjusted establishment numbers show uh, 1,066,000 jobs being added in the month of October. Uh, when you seasonally adjust those numbers, it's 151,000, which is the number that the press picks up and everybody talks about. But there's a second set of numbers that are produced same day, same department, labor department, concerning households. And in that case, they're not calling companies and asking them whether you hired someone or not. They're calling people and saying, do you have a job or did you lose your job or did you get your job? What that shows is if we take the not seasonally adjusted numbers, 7,000, 7,000 uh, increase in the number of jobs in the month of October. If we seasonally adjust them, it shows a 348,000 decline in the numbers of jobs. So how, how are you supposed to look at these numbers? On, on one hand, if you're looking at the uh, not seasonally adjusted establishment numbers, over a million jobs were created. If you're looking at the seasonally adjusted household numbers, 348,000 jobs were lost. I mean, and then, of course, there's a thing that Matt talks about all the time, the birth-death, uh, you know, uh, announcements. And, and what the birth-death is, the government estimates how many companies started business in the month of October, or whatever the month is, in this case, the month of October, and how many people did they hire? Well, they're showing 412,000 increase in jobs. So, you know, the market decides that it's only going to take this one number and I don't know why they think this number is more accurate than any others. And it goes way up under the assumption that, you know, the jobs market is weakening. And because it's weakening, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to stop raising interest rates and they're going to start cutting interest rates. So the whole thing, I think, is uh, is is really very, very uh, troublesome because you, these numbers are simply no good. And they're just no good. And for the whole market to react to numbers which are just no good is, is uh, to me, very upsetting. And the unemployment rate officially ticked up to 3.9%, uh, up from 38 And according to the official numbers that were published widely by the media, uh, three sectors, healthcare, government and hospitality, accounted for nearly all the job gains as measured by the uh, establishment numbers. The media numbers are not the official numbers. The media picks one set of numbers and says that's the official numbers because everything is too confusing if we take a look at everything else. So the, the media numbers, uh, it, you know, do indicate what, what you're showing. But what we've done is we've tried to uh, take a look at, you know, a little bit more closely where the jobs are coming from. Uh, and what we decided was if there was more than a 3% you know, annualized increase uh, month over month, uh, that that was an area where we're seeing, you know, increased jobs. And, you know, residential construction is showing, you know, an increase in jobs, which is meaningful. Automobile dealers, you know, now that I guess the new cars are coming off the lots, you know, they're showing a meaningful increase. Uh, airline people, you know, you know, anyone, you know, a pilot, you know, anyone, a ticket taker, anybody involved with the airline industry, they were up 7.6%. Uh, private education, which always does well, was up three and a half percent. Healthcare, as you mentioned, John, was up four point one percent. Accommodation, which is tourism, basically, uh, was up four point three percent. So that um, 
you know, th th there are there are a widely disparate group of, of uh, sectors which are hiring people. On the other hand, we looked at where they're firing people. Uh, and, you know, th this is the discouraging one because uh, manufacturing jobs were down 3.2%. Uh, information, uh, you know, jobs, which is basically the, the media in, in one form or another, down 3%. Uh, banks and non-banks are down uh, over 3%. Uh, you know, people eating out at restaurants are down 7 tenths of 1%. So if we try to make sense of that set of numbers, it looks like uh, goods producing, manufacturing, still not adding people. Uh, tourism, recreation is still adding people, but not at the rate that it was. So I, I would say that, you know, overall, I would lean toward the household numbers, and those household numbers are not showing that the job market is very strong at the moment. I mean, the thing that stood out to me, and obviously the birth death was just shocking when you when you have a, a, a survey that shows 150,000 jobs were created, and 412 of those are fabricated or guesstimated or estimated or whatever you want to use, but you know they they can't point to any real data. They just it's a plug. Um, those 150,000 jobs, if you look at it, 99,000 of them were part time. And 51,000 were government jobs. I mean, if you take this report at face value and just kind of over, you know, gloss over the birth death plug, this is a disastrous, disastrous report. And if you're trying to be bullish on the economy, your only hope is that the birth death calculation is close to reality. But what you're actually seeing is more people taking on part-time jobs because the implication is that the their full-time job isn't making ends meet at this point in time. And that's really usually a disastrous sign at this point in the economy when supposedly Bidenomics are, you know, is the American dream and we're supposed to be in the land of milk and sugar right now. The jobs numbers that I really believe in are the uh, unemployment claims numbers. Yeah. Again, that comes out from the same place, the Labor Department. But they these numbers come out weekly and they're based upon the submissions that states make to the Labor Department indicating how many people came on to unemployment insurance this week. And what we're seeing in the last two weeks is that unemployment claims have gone up, uh, you know, in each of those two weeks, not by not by a lot, by a small amount, but it's it's a major change. It's not unemployment claims coming down, it's unemployment claims going up. These numbers, I would I, I would agree with Matt, these numbers, if 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 you do what I want, take a look at the household numbers, which don't have the birth death data in it, and 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 you take a look at the unemployment numbers, you know, it is clear that the economy, at least in the jobs area, is slowing down and slowing down meaningfully. Manufacturing activity contracted in October following three straight months of expansion. Well, yeah, I mean, manufacturing has not been strong, uh, you know, for, for actually whatever the expansion that you're looking at was not very significant because, uh, you know, as we reported in the last couple of jobs uh, reports, manufacturing was not growing uh, and it definitely uh, was down significantly in, in the month of October, which shouldn't happen. In other words, the holiday season is the biggest season in the whole year for you know retailers and actually for manufacturers of consumer goods and and basically you know for manufacturing jobs to go down in october when they should be busy you know creating uh, products to go on the retailers shelves to be sold you know th th that's a bad sign it's also a bad sign that, you know, among the job growth that we mentioned a little bit earlier, we didn't mention retailers, people working in stores. So 
the manufacturers not keying up for the Christmas season or the holiday season, the Hanukkah season, and the uh, and the retailers are not you know you know adding people you know in in looking at it. So that's a signal that at least those two groups believe that this is going to be a disappointing, uh, if you will, holiday season. And last week, the Fed paused as expected on interest rates. And now there's talk maybe of the first uh, U.S. Fed interest rate cut, maybe next May or June. Your thoughts on that? I mean, rates are currently at 5.25 to 55 is the Fed done with rates? Dick and Matt, any thoughts on that? I mean, in in his post-meeting press conference, Powell did say that the committee is not thinking about rate cuts at all, but maybe that's some kind of a defensive uh, Fed speak. Well, you, talk. Have to, you have to remember, you know, monetary policy is not driven solely by rates. Monetary policy is driven by the creation of money which is the expansion of the Fed balance sheet. And that's a far more, if you will, powerful way to affect monetary policy than moving interest rates by a quarter of a point. And if you take a look at what the Federal Reserve has been doing to its balance sheet over the last year, they have shrunk the size of the balance sheet by over a trillion dollars, which of course has never happened before. And if you take a look at the uh, pace of shrinkage, if I can call it that, you know, uh, about a year ago, they were shrinking it by about 16 billion a week. Then uh, six months ago, they were shrinking it by about 26 billion a week. And last week, they shrunk it by 41 billion. So, you know, if, if you take a look at that indicator of monetary policy or of Fed policy, it's showing that the Fed is not just is not easing monetary policy, they're tightening it. And they're tightening it, uh, you know, in, in a much more compelling way than simply raising interest rates. Now, if the, the Fed increases interest rates uh, by 25 basis points in um, December, as one of the Fed governors uh, said yesterday, um, you know, people are simply going to say this is the last increase and rates are going to come down, you know, 100 basis points in, you know, 2024. So, you know, I don't I don't think that the looking at the rate number means anything anymore, because if they don't increase it, everybody's going to say it's over. If they do increase it, everybody's going to say it's over. So with the, if, if it's over, the Fed will stop shrinking its balance sheet. I mean, as we said before, we, we've shrunk the money supply in the United States by one and a quarter trillion dollars, which has never happened before, ever. Uh, I don't know what happened in the Depression because we don't have numbers for it. But the point is, it has never happened before in peacetime or in wartime uh, for the Fed to shrink the money supply by that much. In, in fact, they never shrink the money supply. So, you know, that would indicate that the Fed is tight and it's going to stay tight. And if uh, it was the Fed governor who's the head of the Bank of Minneapolis, uh, if he's correct, they're not easing anytime soon. I would I would point out, you know, the comment that you just mentioned, John, that Jay Powell said, um, we're not even thinking about cutting rates. You know, it was only six months before they were raising rates when he was famously quoted as, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. <laughs> like they, they, they changed their mind a lot yeah. over there. Yeah. And remember their game is a psychology game. Like they're, they're trying to push the market into one direction. And that is to get the market to think they're serious about crushing inflation because when they reverse and they're going to have to reverse at some point, 
they they want to have the credibility that they went all the way. They went as far as they could have gone. And if there's any residual inflation, it's not their fault. Um, that's what I feel. I feel like it's just more of a psychology game at this point. And I was just you know curious while Dick was talking. I, I check out um, the Atlanta GDP you know present day forecast all the time. And last week they were forecasting a two point three percent growth for Q4. And all of a sudden I, I log on. And it's now dropped down to 1.2% in a week. Wow. Um, and that was, they said it was based on the ISM data that, that you guys were talking about. And so, you know, it sure seems like if you're just reading tea leaves or reading economic data, that there's not a lot of emphasis on growth in this economy right now. And it seems like everyone's battening down the hatches and people are getting second jobs and the economy is shrinking and manufacturing is shrinking and employment is shrinking. You know, the jolts number is at the lowest point that's been at this time of year in a long time. This time of year last year, we had, uh, let's see, almost 2 million extra job openings. So, you know, the numbers are clearly telling a story. Um, the question is, how far does it go? Because you made that point, Dick, earlier that it's the market is taking care of. I mean, ordinary consumers won't understand this dynamic, but bond traders and professionals on Wall Street will clearly, the markets are taking care of the long rates, correct? I mean, the money is shrinking, right? That impacts. Well, well, I'm going to, I'm going to. Somebody makes a statement on television that the bond market is helping the Fed. And everybody says, gee, that's a wonderful statement. I really like that statement. So then 10,000 other people make the same statement and they make it over and over again. And they look very serious and they seem to be, oh, we really are learned people. Someone unsaid that the bond market is helping the Fed. So I'm going to say it because it's got to be true. The fact is, it's not true. It's not true. In other words, we said that the money supply dropped by one and a quarter trillion dollars. The money, the money demand increased if we believe the GDP numbers by five point uh, 4.9 percent in the third quarter. If the demand for money is going up and the supply of available money is going down, why wouldn't interest rates go up? All right. And, and I think that that's, that's what's, it's the Fed which is affecting the long-term bond rates. It is not some television broadcaster who said the bond market is helping the Fed out. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a cute statement and everybody loves cute statements and everybody makes, there's this guy, Jimmy Kimmel, who has this uh, program, uh, this late talk show. And what he used to do is at the beginning of every month, he would take every broadcaster that he could reach and they would start by saying, oh my God, it's already July. Or can you believe it's July? Oh, it's wonderful that it's July. Oh, the year is going. So just to show that everybody was saying the same thing in the same fashion every month at the beginning at the month. And he did it so often that I think they stopped doing it. The same thing is happening in, 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 in Wall Street. Somebody says, you know, the bond market is helping the Fed. Oh boy, that sounds intellectual. That sounds really smart. That sounds like bond vigilante stuff. I'm going to say it too. Well, it's just not true. What is causing the bond market to do what it's doing is this demand and supply of money and the supply of money is shrinking. And that is going to drive interest rates up at, at the long end of the curve. Your numbers from recently, money supply in America between 2019 and 2022 grew by seven and a half trillion. That was a 50% increase in the US money supply. And then uh, from 2022 to now, it shrunk by one, one and a quarter trillion, your numbers. But you, you also made the point that the economy didn't shrink by one and a quarter trillion. So no, it expanded. 
<laughs> so if the economy is expanding, it means more people want the use of more money. They need more money to to build inventories, factories, buy iPhones, you know, you know, do it, you know, take trips uh, to to uh, Italy to you know do whatever they want to do with it. But they need more money, not less. And the Fed has progressively, for a year and a quarter, given them less money. That has to affect. It has to affect the rates. Now I know monetary. Monetary theorists are saying that, you know, if you shrink the money supply, you're going to kill the economy and therefore interest rates are going to go down. But that doesn't happen immediately. That happens after a lag. And they would say if you increase the size of the money supply, you're going to increase inflation. But again, that happens with a lag. And, and, you know, we'll see the lag hit the bond market. Maybe it's hitting it right now. But the fact of the matter is the supply and demand for funds say very, very clearly that interest rates should be going up. Plus, the United States government can't stop borrowing money anyway, no matter what, you know, they argue about, in, you know, in, in, in the fund house in Washington. The, the fact of the matter is they just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And you can't shrink the money supply on the U.S. government, you know, when, you know, U.S. government wants more and more and more money. Another telltale sign, Matt referenced it earlier, the quit rate um, headline in the Wall Street Journal this morning, boss's new problem, employees won't quit. I mean, it's not that they're not quitting, but they're quitting in smaller numbers. They're holding their jobs tightly. Whereas before we had the great resignation, the great resignation is is done, is over. Yeah, I thought it was more of a social commentary. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's a cute story. Yeah, it's, it's a cute story. I mean, it... If you're trying to reduce headcount through voluntary quitters, then you need a strong economy because people will quit when they are confident they have another job to go to. And if they're not confident, then the quit weight goes down. So it's kind of a backdoor way of saying that the job market is softening. Um, you know, just another telltale sign. But, you know, some of, the, some of those cute Wall Street Journal articles that show up in the fourth column, sometimes I wonder how they get picked. I know it's a tradition that goes back since its foundation. I read them, but they're very well written. But they are... Um not necessarily pumped up with tons of data. Dick, you have a, a note on auto sales, light vehicle sales, used car sales, new car prices, used car prices, and there's some weaknesses in the auto sector. To me, that's a, a, a microscopic way of looking at the, the broader economy, all right? In other words, in, in the period from 2019, to again, the middle of 2022, when the, we got the vaccines and the Fed moved in the other direction. But in, in that period, auto, auto sales of new cars were not growing very rapidly because of the supply chain disruptions that everybody is well aware of. In fact, new car sales actually started to decline a little bit in that period. What happened is used car sales exploded. They were growing at the rate of 20% a year, in addition to which the prices of those used cars were growing at the rate of 19% per year. So you had literally millions of people buying used cars in this period and buying them at you know inflated prices. Now, you know, there's no more problem with the supply chains in, in the uh, new car area. Uh, there's a, a raft of uh, electronic vehicles which are being put on the market at the same time. So people have stopped this aggressive buying of used cars. Not only have they stopped buying them, but the prices of used cars uh, have come down You know, in the last few months and something called the Mannheim Index. And that's not the musical group. It's a different thing. <laughs> 
put out numbers on autopilot. <laughs> the Mannheim Index came out today, and they showed that there was a 4% decrease in uh, used car prices year over year, and that 2.5% of that decrease happened month over month. So now you have to sit back and say, okay, we sold all these people these cars. None of these cars are worth what they paid for them. Uh, in fact, they were substantially less than what they paid for them. And they, and, and we've mentioned this before, they're worth less than the loans that they were taken out. And because, you know, cars cost so much, we're not dealing with the old days in which you would get a two-year loan or at, at most, if you were really uh, adventurous, a three-year loan, you get a seven-year loan. You get a six-year loan, a five-year loan. Those things are very common. Five-year loans, I think, are now the average car loan being made in the United States. Well, if you took a, a five-year loan out at any time up to 2022, you know, you're looking to 2027 to make payments, which are fairly substantial, on a car, which isn't worth maybe, it's probably worth one-third less than what you paid for it. So what are you going to do? Well, if you take a look at the numbers produced by Ally Financial, which is the old General Motors Acceptance Corporation, you're going to give the car back to the lender. You're going to let them repossess the car. I mean, uh, three years ago, Ally Financial, again, the old General Motors Acceptance Corporation, uh, was showing that they had no losses, uh, no net losses on car loans whatsoever. This year, it looks like, uh, if, if my estimates are correct, that they will have $1.9 billion in losses on used cars. And that's, you know, one company. That's not General Motors. It's not Toyota. It's not, you know, Stellantis or, or Ford or whomever. That's just one company. And, you know, my guess is that if you take this microcosm of what's going on in the car industry and start to expand it to the overall industry, you might find that people have borrowed so much money on things that no longer have value if, if you, you know it has you know you have a psychic value if you took a trip to uh, you know London or Paris or Rome or what have you um, but but the point is that money is gone and you're making payments on that trip you're still making payments on that trip you're making payments on the leisure products that you bought you you're making payments on on your house you're making payments on your cars all the stuff that you bought over the last three to four years you're making payments on and you, you can't afford it and if you take a look at the numbers produced by capital one which we've mentioned before which is another major lender to consumers they're showing a doubling of the default rate on their loans it was two percent a few years ago it's it was actually two percent just a year ago and it's four percent right now and if it gets over six percent we're talking about an economy which which is feeling real pain and therefore it, it is very hard not not to uh to take a look at all this data and come away saying gee this economy is in great shape gee the fed isn't going to increase interest rates so therefore i should go out and buy every share of stock i can get my hands on i mean it, it's it's i don't think i don't think the data is supporting that type of reaction uh fitch says just over six percent of subprime auto loan borrowers were more than 60 days past due in october and that tops a previous high of about six percent in october 1996 subprime with bad credit 
Actually, I think Fitch has been ahead of both Moody's and S&P on a lot of things lately because they have to be because nobody nobody wants to listen to Fitch. But the, but the point is, they, they, they have come out with a lot of good data. And, you know, when they came out and said that, uh, you know, uh, defaults on, on, on auto loans, subprime auto loans were at a 29-year high, uh, I, I think that's a compelling number. Um, and and, and I, it, it's fitting what, what Matt just said at the beginning of this, uh, you know, uh, podcast in which he said that people are taking second jobs because they need more money. It's not a, a, a desire to just walk away from the job that they have. I think things are tight. Things are tight. They're getting tight and they're going to get, I think, a lot tighter. I agree that things were tight. I, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, and on on the used cars and and how you know your car is not worth that much, and and you're and you're struggling to make the payments. I, I just don't buy that most consumers immediately think of the dollars and cents of, um, oh, if I if I just mail in the keys and someone can come take my car, my problems are solved. Because people know that when you do something like that, you harm your credit. And you harm your credit for many, many years, a lot longer than than the payment will go on for. And when you harm your credit, you become less qualified to qualify for lower interest rates. And I think that a lot of people have the instinct that I do that just just abandoning your debts because you know it it turns out that the thing you bought is worth less now, or in the scenario of the trip, the trip is in the past and I don't want to pay for it anymore. It, it causes a lot of self-harm to not make those payments. And so I, I kind of think that when those payments are not being made, it's not some sort of rational decision on behalf of the consumer saying, oh, I'm not going to pay for this anymore. It's, you know, they're choosing between making their car payment or eating. They're choosing between making their car payment or their housing payment, and they prefer to have shelter than transportation. But most people need transportation, and they're not just going to do jingle mail and throw away the keys. And I think the reason this kind of gets to the forefront of you know people's mindset was during the housing crisis in 2008 there was a lot of what we call jingle mail where someone just puts the keys in the envelope and mails it to their mortgage company but those were on their second homes the flipped homes and not their primary residences and when you're making that decision about your primary form of transportation or your primary residence i think the calculation is a lot different and and you don't have the flippant i'm just going to ruin my credit for the next seven years decision making that is forced upon you when you actually can't make those payments so i i think it's not I don't think it's going to be a mass walking away because everyone's house, cars are underwater now. Lots of times you buy cars that go underwater and you keep driving them and in over five or six years, you pay them off and it sucks, but you go on with life. And so I, I, I think, I, I guess I just disagree that the psychology will be that as soon as these things go underwater, people just throw throw away the their their quality credit rating. I think it's more of a reflection of actual duress and that they're forced to make decisions and unfortunately they can't make their car payment anymore and so i think that's a difference between how i see it i think i think how you see it yeah but you're saying something far more negative than i am because we know we know that they're defaulting on the cars and if they're not doing it just because they're they're upset about the value of the car and they're doing it because they're in financial trouble uh then things are worse than, than than we're saying right because now you know i mean we know they're doing it right we know that they're doing this we're seeing the numbers i mean Capital One's numbers, Allies numbers, the Fitch numbers, you know, the Mannheim numbers, they're all showing the same thing that people are doing this. So if they're doing it because they're under serious financial duress, then the situation is, is, is a little bit worse. But, um, you know, in the 1990s, I worked for a different brokerage firm. We had found a bonanza because of this new concept that had come out. And that is lending money to people who had gone into bankruptcy. Uh, in other words, we took public three companies. Uh, and their sole their sole uh, 
modus operandi was to find people who had uh, taken uh, gone into bankruptcy and lending the money. And the theory was very simple, which is these people don't owe anybody anything. So <laughs> it was they've wiped away all of their debt. And because they've wiped away all of their debt, we're now going to lend them money and we're going to charge them some outrageous interest costs because they once they, they were once bankrupt. Uh, and, you know, this thing, this thing played out for about five or six years until all these companies, you know, discovered that you shouldn't be lending money to people who've declared bankruptcy because they're going to declare bankruptcy again, or they're not going to pay you back. Uh, but, um, it's 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 amazing what the market is. What I learned in the 1990s is that there are millions and millions of people who have declared bankruptcy that don't owe anybody anything uh, for, for a short period, and then they just go back into debt again. The CEO at Avenue Capital Group was on, I think it was CNBC yesterday, said his company is lending at rates between 10 to 15% to customers who can't borrow off the traditional banks. And he was making the point that you've brought up here recently, Dick, with banks cutting, tightening credit and the new rules and so on. Credit conditions are tightening. And he said it's not not in so many words, but it's a great business, he said to be in 10 to 15 percent he's charging. And this is in the non-bank sector, obviously. You know, see, that's what I learned in the 1990s, that these guys all over the place, they, they don't charge 10 to 15 percent. They charge 15 to 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent. And they do it because they assume that maybe uh, six, 10% of the people they lend money to won't pay them back. What they discover is they don't pay back. In other words, you can't make, excuse me, you can't make the decision that um, a, a legitimate borrower, you know, should pay five or six or 7% and a, a questionable borrower should pay 15%. And the questionable borrower would find it easier to pay back its debt than the traditional borrower. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the mistake that these companies made in the 1990s. I mean, you don't see the money store around anymore. You don't see Phil Rizzuto on television, you know, advertising. I think he may have been money store, but Mercury Finance is not around anywhere. You don't see First Plus Financial around anymore. That was their concept. We can, we'll lend you money. We're going to lend you money at 15%, but they didn't do 15%. It was always 25 to 30%. Uh, we're going to lend you money at 25 to 30%, and you can pay us back, whereas we don't lend money to people who can afford you know, to pay 6 or 7% in interest rates. We only lend money to the people who can afford to pay 15 to 20, uh, 25 to 50 to 30%. I didn't say that too well, did I? But anyway, the point is, you know, the theory that you can lend money to people who can't borrow from banks because their credit is no good and it's a good business doesn't work. It just mm. doesn't work. I mean, there's no more beneficial finance or household financial. If you go back, you know, 40, 50 years, every cycle, these companies crop up. And every cycle, they go down the drain. Uh, and I'm a, I don't know this company, but I'm assuming he better be watching for looking for a drain stopper. <laughs> <laughs> you have some striking, I would call them astronomical numbers by any measure, Dick, on assets at various big banks. Um, you Give us three here. Bank of America says it has assets under management up to forty trillion. Wait now, let me get this correct. Yeah, for the industry. Yeah. Oh, assets under management for the industry. Right. Well, take us through the numbers. Anyway, the point you're making is where is all this money coming from, right? 
Morgan Stanley uh, makes it that as a constant theme that they're going to ultimately be uh, managing ten trillion dollars in in assets. They're 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 they've got about a third, you know, a quarter to a third of that right now. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, says that there's seventy trillion dollars under management right now. And you know it's going to grow at, at at a very rapid rate going forward. The numbers that you're citing, uh, Bank of America says that ten years ago there was twenty five trillion dollars under management, and it's sixty five trillion now that it's grown by forty trillion. Right. So the point is, where the heck is this money coming from? You know, where all of it? I mean, if you can go two hundred years of American history. And only wind up with twenty-five trillion dollars in assets under management, and then you go another ten years, and it's all the way up at sixty-five trillion under management. And these are liquid assets; it's not real estate or, or you know, buildings or things of that nature. You know, that that money has got to be coming from somewhere. And unfortunately, I haven't nailed it down yet. Uh, but what I'm what I'm finding in the initial study is that you know, government debt. You know, in the United States and around the world, is a major driver of this increase in in the availability of funds. Uh, you know, e- easy money money policy, low interest rates. You know, led to this increase in money supply. But this huge increase in money supply, in my view, cannot continue. In other words, you're not going to triple in the next. You, you just tripled, right? Bank of America is saying, roughly speaking, you tripled the amount of money. Uh, two and a half times the amount of money under you know asset management in ten years. These guys are assuming you're going to do the same thing in the next ten years. How can that happen? You know, wh- where is this money going to come from, and what is this going to do to the economy if it keeps coming? So I think that this whole area of asset management is something that has really got to be questioned meaningfully uh, in terms of you know. Who, who, who's going to have that much money? Now, of course, everybody talks about, you know, the, the baby boomers are now retiring and they're dying and they're going to give their money to all their children. Unfortunately, what they're not thinking about is that these baby boomers are going to have medical expenses, which are going to blow their minds. They're going to be, they're going to be lucky to, to have enough money to pay their medical expenses, you know, by the time they pass away. And I can talk about baby boomers like that because I was born before the baby boom. All right. <laughs> <laughs> literally, I was literally before the baby. I think that I need to do a lot more study on the subject because it's 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 a to me it's a compelling one of a where did this money come from in the first place and b how in heaven's name can can continue to grow you know uh, you know in the future. I have a, a different theory, Dick, and maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy, but couldn't the money if if we if the government needs to continue issuing treasuries and and the Fed buying it is not the ideal solution. If the dollar were to rapidly, or not rapidly, but significantly decrease in value, wouldn't that be an attractive for foreigners to come back? I mean, one of the reasons foreigners have stayed away, we, we theorize, is our large debt. But also, the dollar is really freaking expensive right now. And you know, if you're if you're a foreigner sitting on U.S. dollars or sitting on reserve your own reserve currency, and you want to own U.S. Dollar assets, it'd be a lot more attractive if the dollar were to get down, you know, into the 90s or 80s uh, instead of the 105 that it's on in the DXY. Yeah, well, you 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 could be right. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I've never tracked that number, so I don't know the answer to it. Uh, but I do know that whatever country that they're living in, they're they're going crazy with increasing their debt and they're in, increasing their money supplies also. But the 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 other thing though, that you got to keep in mind is that when when inflation is high and interest rates are rising. 
people tend to borrow a lot under their on their American Express cards or to make deposits in American Express because they are able to play the currency game by putting money into your American Express account. Or in the old days, opening up a connect, an account at Citigroup, but Citigroup has closed all its branches. So that, you know, there was a desire to get your money out of your currency and into dollars, you know, because dollars not only gave you higher interest rates than, than your currency did, but the dollar was going up in value and your currency wasn't. So it was a good way to make money. I, I don't know which, which set of numbers are more compelling. The fact that th there's a lot of money to be made in period in the dollar in periods of rising interest rates and american express has shown some pretty good numbers of late the other one being you know i want the dollar to go down in value so i can at least you know get some dollar assets and just for clarity dick so um what goldman sachs was saying that there is 70 trillion dollars under management in the entire in this sector in the wealth management industry that's, yeah, yeah, that's what we're yeah, I just wanted to be very yeah. clear. And then Bank of America, <clears throat> pretty much the same, well, 65 trillion. And and sort of, I mean, these are mind-blowing numbers. Uh, when you think that the US has an annual GDP of 27 trillion, approximately, um, there's 18 trillion in US bank deposits. So it's a good question. These aren't inflated numbers, right? I mean, it's liquid, well, yeah, liquid yeah, assets. Well, they're, they're counting in dollars and the dollars are inflated. But I mean, I'll give you a number, you know, because as I say, I've only started working on this subject and, and I want to do a lot more on it. But, you know, the Federal Reserve claims that the net worth of the United States households is $146 trillion. $146 trillion. Now they're counting in that the real estate that's owned by American households. They're counting the, you know, the, 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 uh, other facilities, hard, you know, real facilities as opposed to financial facilities. And when you whittle it down, uh, of that 146 trillion, you know, it's closer to 75 trillion in financial assets. But again, you know, what, what I need to do and what I am doing is I'm just tracking the numbers backwards, uh, to find out where, where they're coming from. Uh, because if, if they're not going to continue to grow at this rate, there's an awful lot of asset managers that are going to be troubled. Program note, mark your calendars, uh, for 2.30 p.m. tomorrow, we will have a live webinar. We'll be hosted by Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. That would be Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube. That's 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, New York Time. And we'll be looking at the economy and what's ahead next year. Dick and Matt, you will be sharing your thoughts and insights, and it's going to be really exciting. I mean, I guess we should um, thank our lucky stars. We're not like um, Argentina which has a nearly, inflation is nearly 200%, interest rates of 130%, once one of the world's wealthiest and most prosperous nations. And this libertarian uh, economist, uh, Javier Mil, I can't pronounce his name, Mil Millier, I guess, um, he's uh, one of the candidates who ran for office and he's a shot at being the next leader. He's talking about pegging the local currency to the dollar. Well, you know, Argentina is really an interesting study, okay, because in 1913, okay, Argentina's economy was bigger than that of the United States. And Argentina was viewed as an area of, uh, you know, wonderful investment, because essentially, the um, 
the economy was self-sufficient. It was uh, it, it had you know all things necessary to grow dramatically. And then something went wrong. And what what went wrong was uh, when you got to the 1930s and 1940s, uh, this guy Perón became the dictator uh, of Argentina, and he took all of the excess funding that existed in the Argentinian government, and he gave it back to the people. Uh, in other words, he kept paying off the people to keep getting, you know, supported in, in being the dictator of uh, Argentina. And then when he died, the Peronistas, uh, you know, pretty much were the dominant uh, political party, you know, from uh, the time of his death, and I don't remember what year that was, uh, up to the present time. And, you know, right now in the current Argentine, Argentine election, you've got three people who were running two of whom are on the Peronista side, so to speak, you know, create money, borrow money, do whatever you have to do, give it to the people, keep yourself in power. Uh, and the third person was more of, a, you know, a dollarization type of, uh, you know, leader, but but she lost. And and the other the other two are now competing with each other to, to run the government. But it, it it is just unbelievably fascinating how this country which, you know, 110 years ago was right up there in terms of economy, economic size with the United States is now, you know, in, in so much financial, uh, has so many financial challenges. It's truly amazing. I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, when there were actually Irish immigrants went to Buenos Aires. You know, they were old at the time, of course, and, and a lot of it. Europeans immigrated into Argentina at the turn of at early 1900s. There was so much opportunity when when the italian um i'm going to call it revolution occurred you know uh, all the southern italians who had been under the control of spain for 600 years uh and and were happy with that uh and and you know the northern italians came down and and conquered them uh they got out and they went to two places they went to argentina and the united states on the banking sector the regional some uh, it sounded like positive reports coming out or was that a misreading no you're right they had a conference uh, in uh, in boston um and in the, at that bank bank uh, conference in boston uh you know some 25 banks you know got up and spoke and they were all very positive about uh, you know the, the structure of their businesses etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but but the point is the, the, they they were not in my view, 100% truthful, because, um, and, and I'll take a company called Fifth Third, which is a which is a, a very well-run bank, um, you know, which we, we, we're, we are recommending purchase of, but we don't have any relationship with or any, uh, you know, relationship that suggests that we can't just be independent and in talking about it. Anyway, Fifth Third took a look at these newly proposed rules uh, which you know the government, the, the the banking regulators are forcing on the industry, and they decided that they would not wait until 2028 or wait until they saw whether these rules would go into effect or not. So when they made their presentation, they spoke about how number one they were getting rid of loans, and how they were calling their clients 
and saying, you know, we can't lend you any more money because, you know, the government has changed the risk weighting on your loan. Uh, but we, but we want to keep your business. So we're going to give you more in terms of, uh, the, the rate, the rate that we're paying you on your deposits and we'll give you a better rate than you're getting anywhere else. And they're claiming that it's working, whether it's working or not. The point is that they, Regions Financial, other regional banks are taking a look at this rule change situation and actively telling the clients, we're not going to roll over your loans. That's not good because that means that these companies have to go to the subprime market you know, to the guy that you mentioned, it's 10 to 15% and borrow money there, which increases their cost of funding, which gives them incentive not to expand the size of their business, but rather to pay down their debt. So, you know, essentially, um, this this is happening. It's affecting the US economy negatively. Uh, it's affecting the banking industry negatively, because most banks are going to show lower earnings in the fourth quarter as a result of this. But, you know, the U.S. government is clear. There's too much risk to the taxpayer by by backing up everything that these bankers are doing. So we're not going to back up everything these bankers are doing anymore. And that means that the bankers have to, from the banker side, they got to do less. From the economy side, that means less lending. And that is definitely not positive. When do the rules take effect? Are they still being discussed and worked out? 50 years ago, the Basel... Uh, committee on banking was established in all the major countries in the world. And they had the first set was Basel one. The second set was Basel two, which, you know, led to the Dodd-Frank Act. And the United States always wanted to do what they call gold plating. <clears throat> in other words, whatever the rules were that Basel came out with, the United States was going to be tighter because the United States wanted their banks to be perceived to be, and these, their banks are the best banks in the world. All right. So now we got to Basel three, and this is now being called Endgame Basel three. But you know these rules were uh, released. Uh, you know three months ago uh, is one thousand seventy three pages of rules which were released. Uh, the the um, They've gotten people, uh, I didn't mention Jamie Dimon in the whole podcast, but they're getting guys like Jamie, Di Jamie Dimon to say that they're asinine and <laughs> they're not well thought of. Uh, and they've got every major CEO of every major bank in the United States writing uh, comments as to why these rules should not be gold-plated and they should not be put in place. Uh, so they were supposed to go in, in, in effect on January 1st. Uh, that's been delayed. And now it's assumed that, you know, after all of the argumentation is over, they'll go into effect in mid-year 2024. But again, the smart banks, the fifth thirds, the regions financials, they're saying, we're going to take the hit now. And by the time that they release these rules effectively, you know, we're not going to be affected by them. I mean, who reads 1000 pages? That's five, six novels packed into one. It must make <laughs> awful. Is it, it? That's really dense. Deep yeah, in the well, weed stuff. I got to tell you, I didn't read it. I, I you know, <laughs> I'm supposed to read it, but I didn't. What I did was I, I took subject matter, which was of interest to me, and I would go to those pages and read read those snippets. Uh, but the point is, uh, it, it's 1,073 pages. We'll come back to all of that. I uh, hope we'll have lots of our listeners join us tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. That's Wednesday, November the 8th. Uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and we'll be talking about what's ahead for next year and the economy. We'll have Dick and Matt sharing their thoughts and um, 
Outlook. And until then, until episode 95, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.